thankful for the opportunity to be gathered together in worship. We're thankful for a time of confession because it reminds us, God, how much we need you, how often we fall short. But most important, God, for uh, the fact that you offer us grace and mercy and forgiveness. So meet us here in this time as we open up your word and draw us closer to you. Amen. Amen. Well, it's been a difficult couple of weeks around the world. Uh, multiple terror attacks in Europe, our own national tragedy in Charlottesville. And as I was thinking about this amidst all the polarizing rhetoric, with all the feelings of kind of hopelessness and despair, I want to offer up four kind of portraits or images of reconciliation. And when I looked at them, they just seemed to take place against all odds. And one of them is our Old Testament lectionary text for today. Well, the first is I recently came across this story. There was a veteran of the French military. His name was Francois, and he was a guy who led uh, tours of all the major sites connected with the D-Day invasion in Normandy in World War II. And this guy had taken thousands of American veterans back to these sites where they fought in the war. And the last time these men saw this place, it was under attack, marred by gunfire and death and extreme hardship. And on the 50th anniversary of D-Day, this guy, Francois, gave a tour that he would never forget. He gave a long day of touring, and he ended up in a French bar to throw back some Presbyterian beverages. <laughs> when the American veterans opened up the door, they were surprised. They were stopped in their tracks when they heard German being spoken in the French bar. Francois, the tour guide, immediately became very concerned, and there was this period of awkward silence as the American and German soldiers both realized their situation. And it's in these, like, split seconds, there had to be some painful memories, probably some hatred must have flooded over these men who earlier in their lifetime were trying to kill each other. And the question is, when I got to this part of the article, I mean, I started asking myself these questions, you know, does... Does hatred and revenge win the day, or is there something more? Is there a way forward? And I was so curious to see if these elderly men would just throw down in an all-out Clint Eastwood-style bar brawl. <laughs> One American soldier walked slowly over to a table of elderly Germany, introduced himself, and he struck up a conversation. A few seconds later... Another veteran did the same. And after about 10 minutes, everybody in the room was talking to each other. They were sharing stories. And by the end of their evening, they were exchanging their addresses and phone numbers and committing to correspondence in the future. And the article concluded that for these men, the war finally ended with glasses of beer in a French bar 50 years after the armistice was signed. I ask myself, how is this kind of reconciliation? How is this even possible? Perhaps only by the grace of God, perhaps only by people that are willing to push beyond some finger-pointing and some name-calling and some us-and-them type of mentalities that tend to divide us. And so today we're going to look at the climax of the Joseph story from Genesis 45, 1-15. And what we're going to see is that it's a story of God at work and the messiness of real life in order to bring about reconciliation and in order to preserve life. So here it is, Genesis 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him. 
when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, so dismayed were they at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come closer to me. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me father to Pharaoh, lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me the lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children, your children's children, as well as your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. I will provide for you there, since there are five more years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And now your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my own mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father how greatly I am honored in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept, while Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and he wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. The word of the Lord. And so we have this Joseph, spoiled, pampered, favored son of his father, Jacob. But he was anything but loved by his brothers. If you were here last week, you heard that story. His brothers despised him for a couple of reasons. They despised his dream and they despised his technicolor dream coat. Joseph flaunted his dreams which were this constant reminder to his brothers of his superiority. And that hated multicolored coat was a coat fit for a ruler. It was given to him by his father. And it reminded his brothers that one day they would all bow down to him. Of course, his brothers found this totally unacceptable. And can you really blame them? They want a rule too. They want the fancy coat. Maybe more than anything, they want the love of their father. And so the brothers decided to put an end to the dream and to the dreamer. They take Joseph, they throw him in a dish, they strip him of his coat of rule, and they sell him into slavery. They stained his multicolored coat red in blood, and they present it to their father, who's inconsolable in his grief at the loss of his son. And no one expects to ever see or hear from Joseph again. But where we kind of left off last week was there's one thing the brothers had not taken into account. They hadn't considered one important fact, that this dream that the brothers despised was in fact God's dream. God, too, has dreams, plans of preservation for this newly forming nation of Israel. And those dreams would involve Joseph as a ruler. And so while Joseph's stock is rising, Joseph's family is suffering greatly, suffering from two years of famine. And so it's the same famine that elevates Joseph in Egypt that now threatens to destroy his father and his brothers, his family in Canaan. It's the 
famine that the narrator uses to drive these two, these brothers and this unreconciled one Joseph together on Egyptian soil. And so Jacob, in an act of desperation, he sends his sons to Egypt in search of food. Now, those of us who know the story of the Bible, we know that Egypt and Israel don't mix very well, right? And just a few chapters before this text, the scripture actually reminds us that the two could not even eat at the same table together because eating with the Hebrews was an abomination to the Egyptians, probably an abomination to Israel too, right? And so the story builds, and Joseph finally reveals his identity to his brothers. He's in a similar position to the American and German soldiers in a French bar. What is this guy going to do? Is he going to do the same kinds of things that his brothers had done to him? Or can he find a way forward and work for peace? And he dismisses all the Egyptians from the room. He calls his brother closer. He reveals his identity. And his brothers are so shocked that they are completely speechless and unable to even answer his question. They're terrified. Their dead dreamer of a brother is alive and very powerful. Picture this scene in your mind that Joseph is so overcome with emotion that his cries were said to be heard in the house of Pharaoh. You wouldn't have put it like that if the house of Pharaoh must have been a little ways away. How much pain was being released in those tears? I also have to think, how much joy was there in those tears at the possibility that this fractured family could once again be family after many many years. And so I started thinking about this and I found, uh, I found a couple pictures I want to put up. Nearly two decades after the Rwandan genocide, where a million people were killed, there was, a, I believe he was a New York Times photographer named Peter Hugo. He captured a series of probably the most unlikely photographs that I've ever seen to this day. In each of these photos, in this collection, if you look it up, there's a collection where the, there's the Hutu perpetrator and the Tutsi survivor of some just unthinkable crime committed against their family. And the perpetrators in the, these photos, they've murdered whole families, they've looted, they've destroyed lives, and they stand side by side with the victims of their crime. I, I've never seen anything like this. When I first looked at these pictures, honestly, I felt like Joseph myself. I was just stopped in my tracks. I, I was totally overcome with emotion, wondering, how is this, how is this possible? How, how, is, how could this happen? And so, when I looked at it, I, I saw that each of the perpetrator and the, and, the, and the victim of these crimes, they had some quotes listed. And so here, here's the quote um, from these two. The perpetrator actually said this. He said, I burned her house. I attacked her in order to kill her and her children, but God protected them. And they escaped. When I was released from jail, if I saw her, I would run and hide. So I decided to ask her for forgiveness, to have good relationships with the person to whom you did evil deeds. And then he concludes with, we thank God. She replied to his victim with this. She said, I used to hate him. When he came to my house and knelt down before me and asked for forgiveness, I was moved by his sincerity. Now, if I cry for help, he comes to rescue me. When I face any issue, I call him. Can you imagine 
her calling him when she needs help. This is impossible. I, I, I don't understand how this is possible, and yet here it is. In this picture, hand in hand, the perpetrator said, the day I thought of asking pardon, I felt unburdened and relieved. I had lost my humanity because of the crime I had committed. But now I'm like any human being. And she replied with this. She said, after I was chased from my village, and Dominique, he's the man, and others looted it, I became homeless and insane. Later, when he asked my pardon, I said, I have nothing to feed my children. Are you going to help me raise my children? Are you going to build a house for them? The following week, Dominique, this man, came with 50 other survivors and former prisoners who had perpetrated genocide, and they built her and her kids a house. Ever since then, she said, I've started to feel better. This is my favorite line. She said, I was like a dry stick, but now I feel peaceful in my heart, and I share this peace with my neighbors. This collection, I highly recommend finding this and looking at it, because the, it's just filled with, with stuff like this. It's absolutely amazing, and the only answer that you can come up with is that God is at work opening up possibilities that we think are just, we think they're impossible. That God is offering life where there is only death. And so we go back to the Joseph story and we say, to his credit, Joseph actually realized one important thing. He knew that this encounter with his brothers was no accident. And for that, he gets a little credit. He's not without his faults. Joseph is a guy who loves to steal the credit. He loves to pat himself on the back. His grandiose statement about being the father of the Pharaoh. You know that the Pharaoh was the son of the sun god, I believe. So if Joseph's the father of the Pharaoh, do you see where Joseph's kind of putting himself maybe a little higher than uh, he probably is? Ruler of all Egypt, I got news. He was, he was powerful, but he wasn't the ruler of all Egypt. The Pharaoh was that. And so Joseph's a guy, he loves to take credit, but he gets this one thing right, and it's the most important thing. He rightly credits God for this opportunity to reconcile with his brothers. He says three times that God has sent me to, to you to preserve life, to preserve a remnant for you. This moment of reconciliation, it's, it's a God moment. It's not a Joseph moment. It's about life. It's about survival of this fledgling nation of Israel, which at this moment now faces another five years of possible starvation. And so Joseph, I love this, he reassures his brothers that although they plotted to kill him, and although they sold him into slavery, he's going to choose another way. He's going to choose a better way. They have a little bro hug session. Joseph invites his family to come and enjoy the best of all that Egypt has to offer. And I like the end of this. If you look a little further, you see that the, the guilt of the brothers is actually removed. The pain of Joseph is alleviated and the grief of the father at the end of chapter 45 is finally resolved. And so the narrative made me think a little bit about the relationship between human freedom and God's sovereignty. These two things are at play in this story. And the fact is we're free to choose. We're free to choose God's way. We're free to choose our own, our own way. Joseph's brothers, they acted freely. They freely conspired, plotted, and schemed to destroy life, Joseph's life. 
What we learn from the story is that despite the brother's behavior, God is also acting freely. And I think the most amazing thing about the story, the thing I really learned when I looked at it, was that God is at work too, and God actually uses the brother's destructive behavior to bring about life for Israel. God is using their poor choices to bring life to their family. This is amazing stuff. And it seems as if when you look at it, that God had this moment of reconciliation in mind probably for quite some time, that God brings them together, that God orchestrated the whole thing, that God kind of painted this portrait of reconciliation, that God made it possible. But to his credit, Joseph has to walk through the door that's open. God opens the door, but to his credit, Joseph walks through it. And that important day created all kinds of new possibilities for this family. They would still have some major trust issues, right? If you look toward the end of Genesis, they actually revisit this, and when the father dies, he's terrified. The brothers are terrified that Joseph's you know, going to take revenge now that the father's not there to buffer the situation, but that's not what happens. So they're not going to be without some issues. Things are not going to be perfect in this family, but they're not killing each other, and they're not going to starve to death, and that's a big deal. The gospel announcement maybe here is that Joseph, who was dead, is now alive, that Israel, who was in danger of starvation, is now provided for by the grace of God in the most unexpected manner by an enemy empire, Egypt. Those who are familiar with the story, we know that the narrative actually foreshadows a really dark period in Israel's history, 400 years of slavery, but here it ends on a really high note. And so when we look at this and we compare it to our increasingly uh, scarier world at the moment, all kinds of stuff going on, what is our part as God's people? And I think that this story shows God bringing the unreconciled brothers together, orchestrating this whole thing. And it made me wonder and think about how many times has this open door of reconciliation been provided for me when I missed an opportunity or I simply just refused to walk through it. And as I thought about that, I also thought about some of the recent events in Charlottesville, which are a reminder that we have a long long way to go in this country. And there were two churches that are in Detroit, Michigan. They actually made headlines this week, 50 years after the Detroit riot in 1967, in which 49 people died, 1,100 injured, over 7,000 arrested, and over 700 buildings destroyed. It was the worst civil disturbance in our country's history. And that event drove two churches together, one predominantly black church and one predominantly white church. And they said that they wanted to kind of model Christian unity. And in the wake of Charlottesville, these pastors uh, were interviewed and their churches were kind of taken a look at in an article that I saw. And they remind us, both pastors of each of these churches reminded us the same thing. They both said that reconciliation is something that has to be learned over and over and over again. This isn't something that comes natural. And so one of the pastors in a message to his congregation, he wrote this. These are his words. He said, in the world around us, it often seems that division and fear and opposition are the norm. However, God's people have been called to something different, something better. 
And so at the conclusion of one of their worship services, an elder was praying, and he prayed at the end of the worship service that God would prick their hearts and minds. He prayed that everyone would leave worship, that they would go out as God's children, as examples, as Christ was an example, promoting unity and reconciliation. And it kind of made me think that every day in the city of Los Angeles, we're here in the Canal Valley, we're going to rub elbows with people who are different than us. We're going to be side by side with those who hold different political and religious views. We're going to be around those we like and those we dislike. We all call this place home. We all call this country home. And so what do we do with those people whom we disagree? What do we do with those people that we've been hurt by? Or what do we do with those people that we have hurt? And I went to the Apostle Paul in his second letter to the Corinthian church where Paul reminds us that reconciliation is God's work. And that's what we see in this story as well, that we've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And that the reconciliation, the work or the ministry of reconciliation, Paul says, has been passed on to us. That God gives us the ministry of reconciliation. And so we know it's not going to be easy But we see in some of these unlikely portraits, like the one on the screen, that it is possible, by the grace of God, one person at a time, because God is actively and sometimes mysteriously at work in and through, and sometimes, as we see in our story today, even despite our actions, God is still God. And so I don't know, we'll leave with this. It's a beautiful image. May we all join with God as partners in creating beautiful portraits of reconciliation with our neighbors, in our community, in our country, and around the world. We pray. God, we thank you uh, that you are a God of reconciliation, that this is your work. We thank you, God, that you have reconciled us to you through Christ. That you're not holding our failures, our sins against us. You freely and mercifully act to forgive and reconcile us to you. And God, we're thankful for that. And as you give us this ministry of reconciliation, we just we know it's, it's hard, it's almost impossible. But what we learn today, God, is that through you, nothing is impossible. Give us the courage to walk through the open doors that you present to us, to be a people of reconciliation, not to miss those opportunities that you give us. And give us the courage to do that as we walk out these doors into a world which is a little uh, a place of a little bit of unrest right now and uncertainty, God. Help us to be your people in all the situations that we find ourselves in.